0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the
1: 25th annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea. 25! Can you believe it? And tonight we have the remarkable Alice Walker. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university. And Alice Walker's work goes back many years um, with uh, her book, The Color Purple, one of the things you're maybe most famous for, winning the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. Um, <laughs> it, it's going to be a long night, Alice. <laughs> uh, but also famous for her short stories, for her essays, uh, and her poetry. And her most recent collection of poetry is taking the arrow out of the heart. Um, and so let's, let's, just, let's just start this way. Sometimes it seems that your novels, I started reading your novels before I started reading your poems. Um, sometimes it seems like your novels, are, you're making a statement, and sometimes uh, you're telling a story and sometimes it's both. But here's my question about two novels in particular, The Grange Copeland and The Color Purple, where uh, I don't pretend to understand what black people went through. I'm not even gonna try that and still go through to survive in this culture. Um, But while I was reading those novels, I just felt their experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, whether it was Grange or Brownfield or Seeley, and the others, you just made me feel those lives. So I have two questions to start with. One is, is that what you wanted, is to make the reader feel what they were feeling, even privileged white male readers like me? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And then my second question is, how in the world did you do that?
2: I loved them a lot.
1: You loved those characters a lot.
2: I loved the people on whom the the characters are based a lot. And they still exist all over the world in that same condition of barely getting by, being very upset with life, you know, down at heart. Uh, And I felt myself so much love for them. And I wanted people to feel that too. Because love, as you know, is the foundation of change and transformation.
1: So you did want me to feel that way. I did. Yeah, I huh?
2: did. yeah. The, and no, not only that, I knew you could.
1: Nice, 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 nice. So The Color Purple, okay, so you've got the novel. It wins all these awards. It's a movie. It's a, it's a theatrical uh, uh, production, and now it's back on the stage. Can you explain why a book that was written that long ago feels like it was written recently
2: well one of the foundational reasons is because pedophilia is still very strong in the cultures of the world so that this story in which uh, abuse of children is, is very vital When Celia is 14 she's a child um, this is a story that is still happening as we're sitting here we go look at our news you know there it is And so a lot of the subsequent movements are actually rooted in this story, and and I'm so happy about that. You know, I've seen audiences just really, at the end of the story, in the the musical, Mm -hmm. uh, rise with such emotional connection. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to feel that you can help people liberate their own lives.
0: Hmm.
1: So do you write with that audience in mind, people who have gone through these things, or are you just writing stories? Do you have an audience in mind when you're doing this?
2: Uh, Well, I have all of us in mind. I want us to be free. Deeply.
0: Okay.
1: So much of what you write about gets into what a lot of people might call forbidden topics. Hmm. Um, such as rape, abuse, female genital mutilation, all kinds of other kinds of injustice, racism, exploitation, and it just seems like this is a calling for you to to get into these kind of taboo topics. so again, is that a conscious thing on, the, on your part that where you just say, "What secrets can I expose next?"
2: no, no. Um... I was born to do this Hmm. and I was prepared out of my own suffering to do it and to do it well because I went to, you know, there's a line in Zora Neale Hurston's novel, one of her books, where she says, I've been in sorrow's kitchen and I've licked out all the pots. (laughs) And I think when you've been in sorrow's kitchen and you've licked out all the pots, If you don't expire from that, you gain the the real feeling that you know what's there in those pots, and you can help other people survive licking them.
1: Hmm. I'm just going to sit with that for a minute. All right. But not only do you write about taboos, you've also lived Hmm. some taboos. Marrying a white man when it was illegal in that state. Um, you're open about your own sexuality and, your, and, and activities and activism. And it just seems like you're fearless. Are you? Seems like I'm furious? <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, I'll try to enunciate better. Fearless. Oh, fearless. Oh. Not furious. No, you, you do not look furious to me right now. But but you're you just you're such a gentle soul. You know where it's all about love. And yet when you write, you swing a pretty big hammer. I'm free. What do you mean?
2: <laughs> well, it's true you don't see it very often. But it means that I take responsibility for my life, for myself, uh, for being here. I, I feel that the least I can do on this incredible planet, wherever it is we are in space, the least I can do is to be my full being and express this whole thing, I mean, that I am. And what I see, then I have a right, you know, to to, to, to address it.
1: So that freedom just gives you that sense of, I'm, I can write about whatever I want. Exactly. All right. <laughs> there's, there, there's someone, an, an academic, uh, said that one of the main themes of your writing is the black woman as creator and how her attempt to be whole relates to the health of her community. Is that an accurate characterization of your writing? It's pretty good, yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, it, you know, nothing completely covers what I do, I think, uh, because the, the, the observer is not me. You know, I don't even know all of what I'm doing. I go on faith a lot, you know, that if something is calling to me, there's a reason, uh, and I try to give it my full attention. I will spend weeks on end hardly talking to anybody. To be sure that I get what it is we need, the medicine. I think of my work as medicine, uh, and I want to get the right medicine for us. Uh, and I think that's why the color purple actually has lasted so so long. You know, it's a it's a very overdue medicine, and many people are just now getting it. And so each generation. I mean, I've watched generations of people respond to that story because it. It connects to them, and it's very healing. And I absolutely love that. There's nothing more wonderful than setting other people free.
1: Let's stay with that for a second. You're setting them free, though, by, by naming it right? By, by telling a story about
2: it. Well, by telling a story. That's what stories do. And that's my culture. I mean, that's how I learned almost everything. You know, we, we grew up in a, a rural uh, community and we had storytelling. And that taught us so much about, you know, life and wonder and joy and acceptance and a certain kind of fearlessness. Yeah. Burr Rabbit is born in my community, you know all of those folk tales the, the indigenous uh, native american folk tales and the african folk tales, and they're so they're practically identical and also intertwined and they're also always about overcoming some incredible obstacle and having a good time
1: that's true cuz color purple is that mix of overcoming obstacles and uh, Joy. and the juke joint and the, you know they, they're they're having some fun too yeah
2: Mm-hmm. Because why bother to suffer if you're not going to have a good time
1: at some point? <laughs> no, really. I, I, I think that's going to be my next tattoo. <laughs> that's, that's, that's going to be good. Um, Great. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go get a tattoo together. Oh. <laughs> um. <laughs> yep. Oh, boy. All right, so here's, here's, here's another theme, I think, in a lot of your writing. That change in society is directly linked to a change in the individual.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That it's the struggle. There's an outer struggle, clearly, but there's also an inner struggle. Uh, is that a fair... Description of the main characters in your uh, in your stories is that they're they're struggling with both.
2: Yeah, I think um, you know what we have to remember is that the struggle is ours. The society can only move if we do, and we are individuals. We are connected to each other, but we have to think very much in terms of freeing ourselves wherever we are in our house, in our kitchen. You know, wherever we are, we develop, you know, resistance. You know, we we say, this is what I will do, rather than this is what we will do. You know, later we can say what we will do, but unless you say what you will do and and really honor that, uh, there isn't likely to be a we or an us. And we have to work hard at this. You know, we're, we're at a point where if we don't really take full responsibility for how we live every day in our neighborhoods, our schools, our churches, there's really little possibility that we will survive. That's right. mm-hmm. And I want us to, you know.
1: <laughs> I, the first time I talked to you on the phone, I asked you, uh, if you thought we were making any progress as a society on racial issues, police, reconciliation. So I had this big question for you. Are we, are we getting anywhere? And I just it just echoes what you just said. You kind of turned it back on me, and you said, let me ask you something. Are you making any progress? Okay. That was pretty good.
0: Yeah.
1: That was pretty good.
2: And it's a struggle I mean it's a daily And this is one of the reasons why meditation is so good Because you have an opportunity to sit there on your cushion I don't know how you do it I mean there are all kinds of ways of being with yourself honestly And in quiet But this is when you you can figure out and, and consider where you are How far you have come to where you need to be and where you need to be is is that place where you can actually meet anyone anywhere without bowing your head in shame you know or feeling that you are stealing from them you know or that they are in a horrible situation because of you i mean this is this is you start with yourself
1: there there's another theme that goes through a lot of your Essays, stories, novels, and that is quilting. Mm. There's a lot of quilting in your in your uh, writing,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I. So, what's the connection there? What? Why is why are quilting and writing so related?
2: Um, well, because in a way, quilting was our writing. You know, for 200 years, we were not permitted to read and write, and this is one of the reasons that uh, African Americans are so quote behind, even to this day. Imagine if you had been uh, forbidden to learn to read and write. Um, So quilting was uh, an opportunity to create sometimes story quilts. In fact, when I wrote um, a screenplay for the Color Purple movie, I chose, I can't bear to do things over that I've already done. So instead of trying to write a screenplay the way the book was written, I, I created a story quilt uh, that um, Nettie and Celie are co- communicating with each other. Actually, Celie is making the quilt with all the squares representing what was happening in her household. So it has a very long history, this, this quilting, and that's where the women got together on the front porch to trade you know, information about what was happening in their homes and you know, what they thought about things.
1: It also seemed like quilting and writing, to me anyway are related in that you're taking all of these different pieces from sometimes what feel unrelated and you're putting it into some kind of a uh, a common story as you were saying, right?
2: I'm making art. Mm -hmm. Quilting is art and um, you know In fact, for most of us who grew up in small communities where people didn't much have any other way to to make art, uh, it was very high, it was a high craft. And my mother was very good at it. Um, But also the women in the neighborhood, And, and I remember as a child coming into the room, they would have the quilt hanging on a frame and they would be sitting around it and they would be talking and there was such a feeling of safety for, for little children because it, it was clear that the older people were talking about them. They were, they were, I mean, not in a bad way at all, but this was where they had the opportunity to discuss the common children in the community, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it was very functional. And then also that's how you used up your old clothing. So, so it was very economical and also uh, chicken feed came in beautiful sacks at this time and they used those to make squares and, and, and nothing was wasted. In fact, I was trying to explain to someone that when I was growing up, there was no such thing as litter. I mean, it's just totally a foreign thought that there would actually be
1: litter. And the landfills are just piling know, up from, I know. from all of that. It's
2: crazy. It doesn't have to be at all. I mean, yeah. you, you, I mean well, if you, you'd have to subtract plastic. And I don't know how we're going to do that, but we must. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Teachers played a really big role in your development as a writer. There was one in particular at Sarah Lawrence who would, um, without your knowing it, would take some of the writing that you would do for her class and she would submit it to editors. Mm -hmm. A, that has never occurred to me to do to my students' work. (laughs) But but B... You, that's that's just a startling thing, and and didn't as a result of that, didn't Langston? Isn't that how Langston Hughes heard about you?
2: Well, the same uh, teacher she she sent my my work to the New Yorker, and they uh, they rejected it, and I had never read the New Yorker. I had no idea what it was, and then when I did see it, I said, oh, well, that's okay because the print is too small. <laughs> um, but yes, the same teacher gave some of my work to Langston Hughes and he immediately published it in a volume called The Best Short Stories by Negro Writers and he and I became friends
1: And this was the essay uh, To Hell with Dying, right?
2: Yes, it's a story that, and the, and the story behind that story is that I had come north to college and I couldn't afford to go home to the funeral of this old musician that we loved and so I wrote the story in place of trying to be there. Hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, in, in your book, The Way Forward is With a Broken Heart, you say that culture promotes conformity. And, and yet your work really pushes against all types of conformity. And so my, my question is, does all art do that? Does all art, is that kind of its role, is to push against conformity? Is that its purpose? Well, mine is... <laughs> um, but but you know
2: only because I mean, maybe not against all of it, because you know obviously there's so much culture, there's so much art that is wonderful and I love, like Van Gogh, you know um, but but the kind of um, pressure that we can feel from from an unkind art you know and a vicious culture, that has to be resisted.
0: Hmm.
1: So there's a great line, though, from Gwendolyn Brooks who says, art hurts, art urges voyages, but it's easier to stay home.
2: Well, not in my life. (laughs) (laughs) You know, although I love being home, I do. I I really treasure, I can, you know, spend days on end without seeing anybody uh, and be perfectly happy. Um... (laughs) But I've also been extremely curious about the world and about other people. Uh, And I'm so thankful. When I was 18 years old, I went to the Soviet Union, uh, partly because uh, my country at that time was planning to bomb them. I mean, they haven't given up, really. (laughs) Uh, But even as an 18-year-old, I thought, this is just crazy. I bet there are people over there who are just like other people. I mean, I couldn't imagine... That they were so different that you could just bomb them, you know, without caring. And sure enough, I got there, and I, you know, after I had been given innumerable glasses of vodka, <laughs> um, and danced around wherever you know we were and all of that, I could see that they were just really just human beings. Uh, and actually, I preferred them to the ones I some of the ones I had left. <laughs> Back home in Georgia. Mm.
1: So let's keep it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I'm still fixated on the vodka. So, uh, so, so let, let's keep going with this art thing because I I I just love how your work does push against this conformity thing. So you've got another line in your book, "The Same River Twice," where you say. Art is the mirror in which we can see our true collective face.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We must honor its sacred function. We must let art help us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you did with The Color Purple, mm-hmm. clearly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and some of your other books, too, right? You just held up this mirror to us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that's, that's the function of art, right?
2: It is. And, and also, it's to, to encourage you to have courage. Hmm. You know, have have enough courage to see yourself, your real self, not your fake self. Just have have the courage. Develop it. It's not impossible. Because we cannot move if we're not courageous in this way.
1: So let me take something out of The Temple of My Familiar, uh, that book, where you said you relied on the guidance of synchronicity.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Dreams, insights, intuitions they all seem to help you um, a lot of us would just call that being in the zone right but you you you're pulling all these forces from all these different places including your dreams um and you even called it a circle of magic mm-hmm. does that happen every time you write when you get kind of in that not like
2: that book it was an extraordinary experience Do you only give just a brief little Introduction to this circle? Yeah. Um, Well, I was living, I bought a house that was 12 feet wide, so really small. And I woke up one night, I mean, in a dream I woke up, and I went downstairs and there were many floors and I finally got to the very, very bottom, and there were these people uh, from some other realm Busily creating beautiful things, and I, I was just like, Who are these people? How did they get in my house? What does this mean? And they were speaking Spanish, I had no clue how you speak Spanish. Uh, but somehow, to make a long story very short, I, I realized that I was in order to get to know who they were, I had to. Learned the language enough You know, it was still terrible But anyway, that I had to go to a country Where they spoke this language And they made these things that they were making So I ended up going to Mexico Where I've now been for 30 years Part of every year And I, I started writing This is the temple of my familiar And, and they came they, you know, they, I feel like you know, I had the help of whoever these beings were And that, that in a way, worlds of information and worlds of of past uh, activity on on our planet, basically, became incredibly available in a way that I could not imagine it happening, you know, before this this journey. And so that's what I mean about a circle of magic, because uh, I just, you know, relaxed into it. And tried to find a way to to get to where I could make it real, you know, create something that I could hand to you, and you could read, and you could have this same experience.
1: Well, and, and even the last scene that you wrote involved a lion, right? And you were... As I recall it, you were walking up to your studio to try to write that scene. Mm-hmm. Tell us what happened
2: well, um, part of this thing was that one of the characters is is very is blind, but basically he 's virtually blind, and part of the reason he is blind is he 's really afraid of cats and he can 't see them you know he 's so afraid, um, but toward the end he, he he starts to almost see this is a long long big story but anyway so the, the last day of writing this novel, I, I left my studio and started walking up the hill. And I'm talking about, I live way, 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 way in the country. And, you know, usually there's nothing around. And I looked across the field and I saw what looked like a, 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 like a plastic um, garment bag. Uh, the, you know, kind of um, brownish, light brown, beige. And I'm such a neat nick, I will pick up trash wherever I see it. So I was just oh who, who left up this and da da da. So I went out and I was gonna pick it up and it was actually this cat <laughs> um, that as far as I was concerned was confirmation that, you know, the story that I was telling about the man who couldn't see because he was afraid of cats, that it was saying, Thank you, daughter.
1: So, so how do you stay in that circle of magic? I mean, for it's, the writing I do, it just feels like it's just work. It's just work. I don't do that.
2: You know, I really don't. I mean, I... I um...
1: Now you're just making me mad.
2: Well... Um, I don't know I mean I, I just completely Understand that I am this little Finger writing
0: Hmm
1: That's you Wow Okay <laughs> Tell me if this is true You seem to write better Though after you've gone through Some kind of a trauma Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> of course <laughs> Well that's part of what traumas are for you
1: Wait know, a minute, what?
2: That's part of what they're for, honestly I mean that you may not write out of it But you know, you learn a new dance step Or you learn to cook something Or you decide to you know, go to two or something I mean, you know it, Apparently what happens down here, up here, out here Wherever we are is that we inevitably go through major, painful, horrid, you know, terrifying experiences. Well, what, what to do with them? What are they for? And I think and choose to affirm that they are ingredients for creativity.
0: Hmm.
1: I mean, that's the volume of, of, of the poems, Once... Came out of a time when you had Considered taking your own life
2: Oh yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah no I mean Who knows why these things are this way Um, But I didn't take My own life I wrote I don't know how many poems are in there but I wrote A lot of poems So I can only be grateful that I Had the experience of getting very Near to ending this This phase of whatever This is this existence You know in this realm And I managed to stay around for 40 or 50 more years Which is remarkable Mm -hmm. And that's why I always say to people who are suicidal Wait until morning Don't, Don't do it now when you feel like you just have to Because who knows what the gift is that is trying to be given to you In terms of understanding and growing and being compassionate To yourself and to other people
1: Well, let's stay with this for a second, because you also battled Lyme disease, Mm. and you said that that opened up your inner self. Um, You said, as if my illness had pushed open an inner door that my usual consciousness was willing to ignore. That's the key to great writing, isn't it? Where you get to those interior rooms that we've been avoiding for so long.
2: Well, I think of it as healing. You know, I think whatever the writing is, is an expression of the healing. In other words, what, what I'm, I'm able to offer to, you know, a reader um, is, is in some ways like um, the medicine that I already had. So I know it works. So here.
0: hmm <laughs>
1: Mm-hmm. But can we... Can we do that kind of healing or or get to that really amazing artistic expression without having to go through all that crap? No. You were pretty quick with that answer. No? The answer is no?
2: Well, you uh, you know, um, some people like to be a kind of a lightweight.
1: Well, don't look at me. <laughs> okay. There's a bunch of them
2: out there. Right, right, right. No, no but I, you know, but, but um, maybe, maybe it's possible without suffering, but I, I doubt it. I think that there, see, I think hmm. we're wrong about, well, whatever, <laughs> that suffering is to be avoided. I don't think so. I mean, actually, we can avoid it anyway. So you learn how to do it. And this is what Christ said. This is what Jesus said. Did you know Jesus said, learn to suffer and you will not suffer? Lost it. Gospels.
1: Well, okay. So, but that was in a different Bible. But go ahead. Yeah. <laughs>
2: that was in the one I really
1: liked. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Uh,
1: I've written a few of my own books in the Bible that I like better, too.
2: I, I, I'm sure. But, but actually, no, this is, a, this is important, though. It's important uh, to know that, you, you know, this whole thing that we think about trying to avoid suffering, you know, just don't, I don't, yeah, don't let that happen to me. I can't, blah, 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 blah. You know, suffering has a use like everything else. And and in my opinion, you know, if it doesn't kill you, you know, know, it feels like it for years sometimes, it is really trying to deliver something very important to your understanding and the growth of your compassion.
1: Well, here's one of your lines about this says, writing poems is my way of celebrating with the world that I have not committed suicide the evening before.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. And that was really a long time ago. That was, I think, after the first book. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Isabel Allende said one time that if she could have afforded a therapist, she would not have written The House of Spirits.
2: Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So I, I, that would have been a great loss. But, but I assume that's the same for you, right?
2: Well, it's similar, I think. Um, but we, we're all different. You know, there are all these little gradations of, of how we understand how we do what we do.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, let's talk about childhood. You went through a personality change when you were little. Mm. When you got shot in the eye with a BB gun by your brother, yes. Told by your brothers not to tell the truth about it. Mm-hmm. You were denied a ride to the hospital by a white driver, and you got substandard medical care. That drove you inward. You lost confidence and self-worth, and you felt like you were an outcast. So here's my question. Mm -hmm. Would you have become a writer had that not happened?
2: Well, with my life, something else would have happened. (laughs) (laughs) But but I see your point, and who knows? I mean, who knows? Because I, I often think about how... Um, you know the the, the the little girl, or boy, or whoever, who to whom nothing ever mars anything about them. Uh, can grow up to sometimes not get very much deeper than their facade. They, they just don't have to. I mean, they think they don't have to. Um, but I like I, I enjoy living life at such a much deeper level than the facade that I would just be bored, I think. I, I, would, I, I need to feel that the depths that I have are plumbed. I want to hmm. go there. Yeah. I don't want to miss it. And I do feel it, it's missing it if, if in this life. I mean, like, the, the, the life that we have, you know, to me, is just so incredibly mysterious. It is just a wonder, truly a wonder. And to miss any opportunity to actually dive in, you know, and learn more about it. I, I don't want to miss, I don't want to miss that. And that's part of what writing is. You know, it's going into those, those deeper levels and, and going, you know, through those deeper, under those deeper le- layers of whatever this, this is that we have, you know, in, in life. I love it. I love that.
1: Let's talk about your activism for a second. Um, You say
2: more than a second.
1: Well, okay, yeah. (laughs) We've we've got a lot to say here. So you actually have this quote. When I didn't write, I thought of making bombs Mm. and throwing them. Mm -hmm. Writing saved me from the sin and inconvenience of violence. Yes. So which is more effective on getting things to change? Writing or violence? For me, writing, uh, and also- No, why do you writing. say for me? Oh. You, why'd you just say for me? Do you, do you think that's not always the case?
2: Mm, I, I, I can't say for sure. So I can only really speak for myself. And it's something I had to learn, uh, you know, through real rigor. I mean, I, I you know, there's some insults uh, to the soul um, you know, apar- apartheid is, is such an insult. You know, it is major insult every day. Um, and, and you feel like you need to protect your soul, you know, just from being destroyed, basically. Um, and, and writing was what, what helped me. Um, because, of course, I have felt violent. Mm-hmm. It's a natural human instinct when you are Oppressed, you know, obviously. Martin, I'm sure, at times felt violent.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And what is, what is so wonderful about his, his greatness, as with Gandhi, is that turning away from that, you know, and, and going, uh, doing the effort to transform a culture in a different way without, without violence mm-hmm. is, very, is very challenging, and it's why we love them.
1: Right. So there, there are some, some things in your writing that deal with hate. Mm. Let's keep going on this. This is kind of fun. Mm. Ah. Um, <laughs> I see. You, say, you said, I found in my own writing that a little hatred, keenly directed, is a useful thing. Once spread about, however, it becomes a web in which I would sit caught and paralyzed, like the fly who stepped into the parlor. hmm so, here's my question. Can hate be at least directed or harnessed a little to, to accomplish something?
2: Yes, I think so. Like what? Well, like hatred of plastic in the ocean.
1: Yeah. Would rage be a better word than hate? Or is hate still a pretty good word?
2: Um, I don't know. I mean, that's something we could talk about. I'm not sure.
1: Well, the reason I, I fixated on hate is that there are a couple of places, like in the Grange-Copeland character, uh, he disrupts church services that are preaching about love, and he shouts, teach them to hate, teach them to hate if you want them to survive. Yes. That just sounded so powerful.
2: It's powerful, but it, it's, it's not a good thing. I mean, it, 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 he knows what he means. But actually, when you teach people to hate, you're teaching them basically to wound themselves, because there's no hate is like a, it's like a, a, a very sharp knife or something, and you can easily cut yourself. That's why love is actually better, even though we suffer so much trying to change society by using or being or having love. Because hatred is is very, um, you know, it's not really controllable. You could feel that you can, you know, sometimes just hate, you know, like one person. But it grows like anything else.
1: But that character, Brownlee's wife, you describe her as having a weakness for forgiving people. A stupid belief, it says, that kindness can convert the enemy. It didn't work out very well for her in your book. You know, you're you're reading
2: a book I haven't read in 30 years. I hardly remember. (laughs)
1: Then then I can pretty much tell you anything that's in there, right? You won't know. (laughs) You want to talk about forgiveness?
2: Well, I think forgiveness is essential. You know, but she, but it killed her. Well, it killed her. Mm-hmm. But not forgiving may well have killed her as well, and it may have killed her before she died.
1: Fine. 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 <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's a pretty good answer. So, <laughs> so I, I love this essay that you wrote about uh, Flannery O'Connor, where you got mad at her. You, you, you read her growing up, and then you got mad at her, or at least the people who said she was the only Southern writer worth reading. Hmm. And apparently there were no black writers in uh, you know, where, what, what you were reading. And then you came back to her, uh, and you appreciate her, right? Right? well all this is very long
2: ago but i love flattery and and actually faulkner for most southern people white people especially faulkner would have been much heads and shoulders above o'connor you know as the southern mm-hmm. writer
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah
1: but there were, but then as i understand it as a result of just kind of looking at where there were there no Black writers, you started writing stories that you thought you would have wanted to read mm-hmm. when you were young, right? And Zora Neale Hurston. Mm-hmm. As as you and I have talked, uh, I started reading her uh, because I was visiting Haiti a lot and I was interviewing voodoo priests,
0: uh-huh.
1: and um, uh, she helped me understand voodoo uh, yes. in, in me a
0: turn. way that, me yeah, turn. yeah,
1: in a way that no other writer helped me. Mm-hmm. But you kind of rediscovered Zora Neale Hurston. She had kind of, mm-hmm. everybody had kind of forgotten about her. So thank you. You're welcome. And, um, and But what made you want to resurrect her? Well, love.
2: Um, but also I was writing a story about my mother, and I needed, this is, the, this is a story about how during the um, Depression, my mother had My mother was very good-looking, and she dressed up to go to get food from the commissary because this was a period when, during the Depression when people didn't have enough food to eat. And she had received some cast-off clothing from the North, and she put them on to go to get this food, and she was looking really great. And the white woman who was in charge of giving out the food refused to give her food because she looked so great, right? So I was so angry with this woman who had who had shamed... My, well, she couldn't really shame my mother because my mother was had a great big heart and everything. But anyhow, she'd insulted her. So years later, I decided that I was going to take this white woman on. Now, this white woman had died many moons before this. But anyhow, as, in, as a writer, I get to, you know, settle a few scores. <laughs> so I decided to... Um, you know, what could I do to this woman? She died, and I was in college, and whatever. I think I was, I graduated. But anyhow, I decided that I would voodoo her. <laughs> now, so that meant I needed, you know, the real deal. I
1: needed some Like you thing. got the doll and the pins and all that kind of stuff? Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Dear your story.
2: Yeah, you were asking me about I know, I know, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Zora so Neale Hurston. So, so, Okay. So I went to the white anthropologists to find voodoo um, from from black culture. And do you know what one of them said? He said he didn't think black people had a large enough brain. So I said to hell with him. And I turned and I found Zora. And then I found the story about how you actually uh, basically voodoo someone. And that's what I put in my story. So if you ever want to know how to voodoo somebody, just read this story and you're on your way.
1: (laughs) I don't remember, was was it effective? Of course it
0: was.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So so when you were trying, you tried to find her grave. You tried to find where she was buried. But I know you found it, but... You had, to, you had to pose as her niece. I did. To... You're not her niece. How do you know?
2: <laughs> okay, I
1: lied. Yeah. It was, it was worth it.
2: Yeah, and all, all, all of this was basically... How many people in here have read Their Eyes Were Watching God? See...
1: That's thanks to you.
2: They, they, they are not complaining because this is, this is what you do to be able to deliver a gift. Zora was on her way to delivering this novel to you. I want you to know. She, was, she had done her work. She had written this book. She was virtually penniless. She was ill. She was, but she was writing this novel. She was going to get this novel to you down the generations, right? The least I could do is help her.
1: And she had been gone how long by the time...
2: Well, she died when I was uh, a senior in high school in 61. She, uh, I don't know, a long time she
1: was yeah. gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we're grateful.
2: Mm-hmm. Me too.
1: So let's talk about banned books. Hmm. Your books have been banned all over the place. In fact, hmm. we have... We, 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 have, we have somebody in the audience who nearly got kicked out of high school because he was caught with a copy of The Color Purple. But, um, so it's banned from schools. Here's, here's the greatest piece of timing, though, is that the California state tests, the standardized tests. There were two of your essays in that standardized test. Stories. Yeah, two of your, I'm sorry, two of your stories. Right, right, right. In that standardized test, people got upset because one story looked like it was about anti meat eating, and another story was about anti religion, in these people's opinion. But here's the great timing this is going on while you were being honored by the governor of California as being (laughs) a literary treasure. (laughs) That's just too rich.
2: Yeah, and and basically that's why you need not pay any attention to any of it. (laughs) You know, you just basically live, do your work, you know, head for the hills when you want to. Um, You know, really, I mean, they're going to be coming for you, whatever you do. Um, And, you know, your job basically is just to keep going. One foot in front of the other. You know, no matter, and you know, this is actually in the Dhammapada, uh, one of the, uh, the great Buddhist texts, which is so remarkable because it's so old. But basically, it says, you know, no matter what you you do or say, they're going to talk about you. You know, they're going to try to drag you down, uh, and and that's just is part of the human condition. And so, what you learn, and what I, I have learned over the years, is basically I mean, I, I can't say that I'm not wounded, you know, but we're all wounded somehow. But I, I, uh, I get the arrow out, and I keep going.
1: Nice way to refer to your book there. Yeah. But here's, here's the thing about th- those stories that were banned and, and the people who had trouble with the color purple. Mm. Um, The critics hadn't actually read the stories, Mm -mm. right?
2: (sighs) You know, I don't even have a place in my brain for, you know, even conceiving of the kind of mind that would be so violently opposed to my work. So I don't know whether they read them or not. I mean, obviously, they didn't read them the way we would read them, you Mm -hmm. know, with intelligence.
1: (laughs) Well, here's what you've said about banning and censorship. You said they are attempts to avoid the pain of encountering subjects that frighten or hurt. Mm -hmm. And you said in order for understanding among people to evolve... We must continue to learn to sit with one another's truths, which to me is the real meaning of the First Amendment. That's good. Yeah. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So your biographer, Evelyn White, said in the preface of her book that the reason she was drawn to you was by this question. What was it about Alice Walker and her work that always seemed to generate such intense emotion? What do you think that is? What is it about you and your work that just generates all this stuff? What do you think? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're not my therapist. No. <laughs> Although I like you better than my therapist. That's
2: uh, good. That's good. I honestly, you know, I don't know. I mean, I I write um, with the passion that I feel, and what is what I'm grateful for is that I have the skill, apparently, sometimes anyway, to, you know, make it connect. You know, to have it connect with other people. Um, And I see it as a gift. I see it as something that comes from a long line of artists who are not permitted to be artists and writers who are not permitted to be writers. And so I feel it intensely as a responsibility. Uh, And I think all of that is transmitted to the reader.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Which is good for them.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. But your your writing is a form of activism, as we've talked about, but you also personally have have done some activism. Uh, You've been an activist. You, You call that paying the rent on being alive and on this planet. And you've been arrested plenty of times But the time that I was really, the the account that I was so moved by, one of the times you were arrested, was uh, in Washington at a women's march, and you and the police officer who arrested you became friends. Mm. How'd that work out?
2: Well, I maintain that the police are also the people. And... Since the police are also the people I can I can be but only so, you know I mean, even this person who was arresting me. You know, it was his job and and I was trying to help him. Actually I didn't quite know which way the hands went, but you know um I, I just saw a brother. I just saw my brother. Really, he was wearing the uniform, but he was—he was just a human being. And this is interesting. I mean, I—this is a, sort of a tangent. You mind? <laughs> no. But—but—but but, but, uh, when when the hurricane uh, Katrina hit New Orleans, um, uh, some friends and I took a lot of books down to the Astrodome, where the people were. Some of the people were, and I was giving out books to. The people who lost everything, and I could tell. And the, there were a lot of police there, and I could tell they really wanted books. And I had a lot of books, so I was giving them out. And, and uh, then some of the the, the the regular people who you know that I was giving books to said, "Well, you don't have to give them any because they're the police." Hmm. But I could see clearly that they wanted to read. I mean, I could see that they. So I said to them, "Well, no, 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 no." They said, the, the, the people said, don't, don't give the police books, just give books to the people. And I said, but the police are the people. And that is incredibly important, I think, to remember. Even, even with all the, the horrible things that are being done in our communities by the police, we will lose it, we will lose so much if we ever forget that the police are the people. Also,
0: Hmm.
2: you know, Um, there's
1: a great image of this police officer on his knees in front of you, helping you put your shoes back on.
2: Oh, yeah. And he was also telling me that his wife was not happy that he'd arrested me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, it was very wonderful because I just felt my sisterhood with her. You know, I just felt like, yeah, you just go give it to him good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so here's,
1: here's another reason why people have intense emotions about you. You've been a supporter, vocal supporter of Fidel Castro in Cuba, Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua. First Americans. You've appeared with them on different protests uh, in North America. And more recently, Palestinians. Mm -hmm. That's not recent. That's old. Well, okay, But, but, and you've got this conspiracy guy on your, on your website. David Icke. Yeah, yeah, David Icke. Are you just trying to find ways to upset people? Because you've got a lot of people saying because of David Icke and because of your pro Palestinian or your pro Palestinians are people position, you get accused of being anti Semitic and hating Jews and all that. What's that about?
2: Well, the foundation, funnily enough, is in my marriage. Uh, I married this wonderful Jewish man, lawyer. And after the Six-Day War, when Israel took all the land that they had, you know, conquered uh, and refused to give it back, we had an argument, because I thought that the land should be returned to the people. And he thought it did not, and he thought that because I thought it should have been, that, that meant I was anti-Semitic and not in favor of Israel, but I tell you, uh, there is in this slur that, that is graining ground, unfortunately, in our country, something that is really very dangerous. It will soon be so that whatever you say against the behavior of the Israeli government will be termed anti-Semitic. And this would be very dangerous, you know, and we must not let it happen. You have a right to your, your feelings, your expressions about anything um, and so that's, you know, that's the, the, the foundation of that. But as with anything else, I accept that I will be um, blamed or, or accused of whatever, but I prefer to have done what I thought to be right, no matter what the consequences. Yeah.
1: I think a lot of the concern is just the presence of David Icke on your, on your website. I love David Icke. Take it or leave it. No, that, that's fine. That's fine. So the, some of the criticism about... This is what just really surprised me about some of the criticism about The Color Purple. Mm-hmm. Is critics felt sorry for the men in your story, but not for the women. <sighs>
2: Yeah, well, you know, there we are. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, was, it was shocking, actually, to have men, often who hadn't read it, who said, I haven't read the book and I haven't seen the movie, but, you know, it's making us look bad. Um, you know who also didn't like The Color Purple at all? Bill Cosby. <laughs> He, he hated it. He thought it was very bad for our community.
1: Because it made black men look bad? Mm-hmm. It did.
2: Well, um, there, there are a lot of ways to look at this. You know, life is, is not really, when you're, when you're in the trenches, uh, as we have been for 400 years, it's really about freeing us. It's really about, you know, having a life and to actually have a decent life, you have to look at some of the most awful places. If you don't do that, you will never be free. And I think um, the, the longevity of this, this, this story teaches us that, you know, that you can actually uh, tell the story in its, in its, you know, harshest aspects. Um, but also to show that you can, you can have this, these places of harshness and you can have redemp- redemption, too. Yes. So the men are redeemed. It's just that when you have a culture that insists that all men have to be, you know, a certain macho type, they can't see the other men who are not like that. They just can't see them. So part of what we need to do in, in many of our cultures is to be sure that, you know, We can identify people no matter what they're doing, no no matter what their behavior. You know, they're still human beings, you know, men or or women. Um, It was so painful to realize that many of the men who complained just missed completely Albert's transformation as a human being. I thought it was so beautiful. It
1: ends so hopefully.
2: Oh, it's such a beautiful thing to think that someone who was so, you know, controlled by his father, you know, by the culture, by everything and, and not strong enough in himself to have the woman that he loved, that he somehow managed to transform himself into the kind of person who could be her friend, or his, his uh, wife's friend at the mm-hmm. end. I thought this was lovely and so possible.
1: That redemption was part of the theme, it seems exactly. like to me. Exactly, right. Mm-hmm. So so similarly, with your book Possessing uh, the Secret of Joy, you went right after the topic of female genital mutilation. Mm-hmm. And the cultures that practiced this had a problem with you doing this.
2: Not all of them, though. You okay. Know, I mean... It,
1: they told you, I thought they told you to stay in your lane. What, what's this Western woman from, um, you some know? Of
2: them, some of them had that um, view, but honestly, when you get down into some of these communities where the children are really suffering and where the women, when, the, when you help them even remember what it felt like, what had happened to them, they were, they were very glad. Because after all, this is a movement against female genital mutilation that African women themselves were, were were leading. It's just that they needed support from those of us outside the cultures to help. And I was happy to to help.
1: So so did you start that story kind of with this premise that this is a barbaric practice and it needs to be stopped. Maybe the best thing I can do is tell a story that involves this. Is that how you started?
2: Um, I'm not sure how I started. I th- oh, yes, I was in Kenya uh, when I was uh, a teenager um, trying to build a school, help build a school out of sisal stalks. This is just you know, virtually nothing, but w- they needed a school, so I was trying to do that with some other people with a, an organization called... Um, Something for some kind of living, I forget. But a long time ago. But anyway, I overheard some people talking about the women having their bath. This was a euphemism for cutting away everything. A bath, right? So it took me 20 years after understanding what they meant to actually get my courage together and my finances and my housing and everything to write this book. And, and during that twenty years, there were mi- millions of children and women harmed with this by this practice. So again, I felt um, that if I could just make one child's life free of that fear, you know, and free of the consequences, because the consequences, you know, many people think it's just like they call it circumcision. Just, they think it's just like uh, what happens to me. It's nothing like that. I mean, it's just you know, you can be sick the rest of your life, for instance, incontinent for a long time in your life. I mean, just terrible things you don't even want to hear about. Um, so, actually, to be able to contribute to the ending of this practice, and by the time we had been working on this for I don't know ten years, there were African men who who were with us, and that was joyful. You know, that, and the reason, you know why they were, there were two reasons why they started paying attention. One was because they realized that AIDS was um, transmitted because there was always blood when, you know, all kinds of things. And so they thought, oh, no, this can't have that. But the other thing was that in many cultures, the the men had suffered from having their tribal uh, Mm -hmm. identification marks Mm -hmm. put on their cheeks, and and it was painful, even though they were told that they couldn't admit that it hurt. So so the, the head of the, the group of men who came to help us finally had all of these, these scarification marks. You know, he was gorgeous, but he was telling the story that was so similar to what happened to women. The story is, for the, the girl and the boy, is that we're going to visit your grandparents. Now, in Africa, and, and, and this was true in my case too in Georgia, The grandparents' place was just heaven. You wanted to go there. They gave you whatever. You know, they were just... However, because this was a cultural thing, when you reach a certain age, going to see grandmama, meant, or grandfather, in the case of the scarification, that this was done to you because it was a tradition. But it was entirely harmful to the people. Mm -hmm.
1: So you started with that and i want to change it i would, when you when you started writing that
2: well yeah definitely
1: yeah okay yeah you said back in the 80s that black women, the black woman writer is not taken as seriously as the black male writer do you still think that's true
2: i don't remember saying that but it probably was true
1: you said it back in the 80s. I just want to know whether you f- still feel it.
2: I, I don't think that, I mean, you know, ooh, I don't think about that really much anymore. The the novel that recently just blew me completely out of the water was um, Water Dancer by, mm-hmm. by ta C- yeah. uh-huh. uh, And and what I love about it because I really think there's a way in which the black male writers have caught up in a sense. I mean, not to be making them mad by saying it this way, but um, you know, black women writers have had to be both men and women in our writing. And we have had to create men and women as, as real human beings. And uh, in a lot of male, black male, black male writing, um, because of misogyny, it was impossible for the writers to actually see women you know, to really see us as we have had to see them. I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> Good. I'm tracking. So, um, so I think I think now we're we're more we're more in the same. When I was reading uh, the Water Dancer, I was so delighted because those male and female characters are fully seen hmm. and felt. Okay. And it's just lovely.
0: Okay,
1: I want to talk about your poetry for a minute, mm-hmm. where you have said poems present themselves to you and they present themselves to you in bunches really you you just you 're just channeling
2: no i 'm not channeling i don 't know about channeling uh, I, I, I was going to say I wish, but i don 't wish, um, whatever it is that that well i I think what I pay for for being able to write so much is i don 't have much of a memory hmm. i don 't it 's very weird
1: so but there are times when you 're just not feeling poetry, and then there are other times where it, it just
2: well it's it is like a visitation but but it 's also like a guest you prepare for it you know you feel like um, there is something gathering, something happening. I'm understanding something. Uh, and, and, and it's work. I mean, it's been, it's like you, you live the work of it. So it's not, it's not you know, coming from above, it, it's coming from a life deeply lived, you know, and sometimes with a lot of struggle and pain and loss. Uh, but eventually, it's, it's as if all of this turns into a kind of gold. And then, the, you know, what happens is you have to find a, a way to present it, to, to be there, present, for it to come.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then you can, you can present it to the world as a gift, which it is.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, it, it just seems like so much, even to, just in our conversation today, you just have this open heart. Mm. And, and then I started thinking about uh, the titles of some of your books. Now is the time to open your heart. The way forward is with a broken heart, taking the arrow out of the heart. Are you seeing a pattern here? Yeah. So, so what is what is this what is this about? What is this heart?
2: Well, it's you know we were talking today. We we went out to we were at dinner earlier, and and we were talking a bit. And it's about uh, you know, re, and I don't know whether this continues. Maybe it closes again or something. But it seems to me one of the goals of our existence has to be about having an open heart and learning to even know what that is or what that feels like. I maintain that the feeling of the open heart, uh, and, and it's not like it, it just stays in the same, you know, it's not like an open window exactly, but the sensation of love uh in the heart itself. Um is, I have a feeling, the, the aim, one of the aims, anyhow, of our human life. To be able to actually feel your heart in the activity of loving. You know? And it's not all about just when you fall in love. I mean, that's the kind of, that's when most of us feel our heart. You know, we fall in love and we go, oh, you know, but th- this is a, this is a, this is a way, I don't know, it's hard to describe it, uh, except I have seen some of the paintings of, of the, the Sacred Heart, I guess it is, where there is this light that's coming out of a heart. And that is sort of what it feels like,
0: mm-hmm. you
2: know? And, and so to be able to create at a certain deep level of compassion and love. And and without considering at all that they may just kill you for doing it uh, Is to awaken that feeling in your own heart And it's really worth anything to be able to feel that It's incredible
1: It's human, mm-hmm. right? It's feeling human Right So so we're, we're starting to wrap this up here. And, and I want to talk about your philosophy. Um, that I'm, and I'm taking this out of uh, the world has changed. The way I see it, you say, life is about growth, struggle, and trying to expand your love of self and of other people. Also, to really try hard not to cause harm. To cultivate a way of life that is harmless. This is likely to take all of your energy for your entire life. And if you harm some folks along the way, well, that's why the apology was invented. (laughs) You said that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Is that still the case? I think so. Because, you know, I had a guest... um, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I had, you know, invited her and very, very happy to see her. Uh, but at some point, she said something that was so weird that before I could practice what I w- was preaching there, um, I, you know, I said, oh, you know, if you say it like that, it sounds like blah, blah, blah. Uh, and she was deeply hurt. And and of course she was. I mean there was no reason why I should have been wherever I was. Um and so I I completely apologized and I, I completely um explained that I I understood my failure in that moment to to know that as my guest and as my friend there was no reason in the world why I should have said in that tone hmm. what I said. So, so I think that that's how we go. I mean, it's, you know, we're bound to, we're just human beings, really. Uh, and some of us, you know, for whatever reason, we're just not up to par at certain times. And that is why the apology is, is still useful. And, and we should not be afraid to use it.
1: You're a big advocate of keeping a journal, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of stuff do you put in it? I don't, I don't want you to read it to me. I, but, but, no, what, what, what's, what's in there? Well, you'll be happy. I don't know whether you'll be at, But anyway,
2: I'm publishing my some of my journals. Oh, cool. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why, I, you know, I, I have a journal because, as I mentioned, I really don't have much of a memory. Um, and, and I see this as a positive. I'm not at all, you know, lamenting that I don't remember hardly anything. Um, Because I realized that the work that I do requires that I have my capacity, you know, for the work that I'm doing. It's it's not there for memory. Now, in my mother's life, she remembered everything. She remembered the shoes she was wearing when she was three years old. I don't have anything like that, you know. Um, I barely remember what I was doing, you know, ten minutes ago. But um, it's, it's... you know, it's okay, because I understand that I have, you know, I have become, you know, with my own gratitude, this being whose task it is to do what it is I do. And, and I'm doing it the best I can.
1: You've, you've tried to take sabbaticals from writing.
2: Yeah, I failed. How come? Uh, well, you know, in in the church that we used to have in the South, uh, they would say, "Well, he ain't finished with me yet." Uh, but my sense is something similar. I think that when when I am done, um, you know, my sabbatical will go into eternity. Hmm. But until that moment, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I'm
1: here to do. So glad. Uh, what kind of advice do you have for some of the writers in the audience here? What kind do they need? We don't have time to quiz everyone here, so just come on. Out with it.
2: Well, Well, tell me something that you think.
1: The, the, the well, okay. So we have peop- we have a lot of students, okay. high school, college. Uh, they're thinking about a life as a writer. Maybe maybe going into fiction. Maybe they're going into journalism. Maybe they're going to be poets. Mm-hmm. So, what what do you want to tell?
2: Find them? the meaning. Find the meaning. Um, you know, it's, it's all well and good to want to be a writer, to think that you can write, or whatever. You know, it's a thing that's it's like a, a label. But without meaning, it's it, it is it's meaningless. You know, I mean, it, so so find the meaning and then express from the meaning of writing to you. Um, and if you don't feel any joy at all in doing it. Don't do it. Hmm. You know, it's wonderful when you feel, you know, the, that great. Um, you know, it's, it's a little like um, being part of, of the creation, you know. You're doing your part, you're, you're writing the part of creation that is yours to write. I have written so many things in absolute bliss while I was just weeping like a crazy person um, and it was just incredibly wonderful and I hope that for you you know but, but what I don't hope for you is that you just sit there and you keep trying to make something happen and it's not happening in your heart and it's not happening in your spirit don't do that no. and also you know no, please. writer's block I don't believe in writer's block. And thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the, the one person who agreed with you just applauded.
2: <laughs> yeah. But see, you're right. And it doesn't matter that you're one person. You know, because this whole thing about, you know, I have writer's block. You don't have writer's block. You should just go do something else.
1: <laughs> so, So here's... Here's how I'd like us to uh, end this very delightful conversation, Uh, and that is, would you read a poem for us? Sure. Is the the light okay? Uh
2: Uh-huh. Okay. This is called How Poems Are Made, a Discredited View. Letting go in order to hold on. I gradually understand I gradually understand how poems are made. There is a place the fear must go. There is a place the choice must go. There is a place the loss must go. The leftover love. The love that spills out of the two full cup and runs and hides his too full self In shame I gradually comprehend How poems are made To the upbeat flight of memories The flagged beats of the running heart I understand how poems are made They are The tears they are the tears that season the smile, the stiff neck laughter that crowds the throat, the leftover love. I know how poems are made. There is a place the loss must go. There is a place the gain must go the leftover
1: love. Alice Walker,
0: thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.